Okay, we'll get into our study tonight. We're in the book of 1 Samuel. We're picking up in chapter 16. Where we left things last week, Saul had been rejected because of his disobedience, because of his rebellion before the Lord. And so he knows that his time is up. And Samuel goes home grieving. Uh, In fact, he never again speaks to Saul, but his heart is broken for Saul, the king of Israel. One of the promises that uh, God had made Saul Uh, Back in chapter 15, verse 28, Samuel said to him, The Lord uh, has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And so he, he comes to understand here that he's going to be replaced, and it's in chapter 16 that we meet Saul's replacement. So picking up in verse 1, The Lord said to Samuel, How long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I will send you to Jesse, the Bethlehemite, for I have provided for myself a king among his sons. And so he basically says, suck it up, Samuel. It's no longer time for grieving. I raised you up not just to be the last judge, not just to be a prophet of Israel, but as the anointer of kings. I've got a job for you to do. Fill your horn with oil and head to Jesse uh, in the city of Bethlehem. And then notice how he finishes here. For I have provided for myself a king. You remember the people of Israel had asked for a king like the other nations. And that's what they had in Saul. But here we see that God has, has found the king for himself He is his chosen king. And by way of reminder again, if we read the book of Ruth, we discover that this plan is not from the days of Saul, let alone the failure of Saul, but predating the birth of Saul by a couple of generations, beginning back with Boaz and with Ruth, when God is working towards a king for Israel in the days of the judges. And so he sends him to Bethlehem, verse 2. Samuel said, how can I go if Saul hears it? He will kill me. And the Lord said, take a heifer with you and say, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. And so the happening here is a little bit covert. It's a little bit, uh, you know, covered up. Uh, He knows that if Samuel is seen to be traveling outside of his usual circuit, moving outside of Ramah where he lives, that it may be possible that Saul has spies in place because Saul's kingdom is threatened by the behavior, specifically the anointing of Samuel. So God says, you're not just going to anoint, you're also going to offer a sacrifice. You may remember that back when Samuel anointed Saul, it was during a town festival that Samuel was officiating Um, in his role. And so he's going to do a similar thing here in Bethlehem. Verse 3, it says, and invite Jesse to the sacrifice, and I will show you what you shall do. And you shall anoint for me him who I declare to you. 
And so notice here, as is often the case in God's leadership, leading his people, he doesn't lay out everything up front. He says, go to this house and I will show you what to do. Just as he said to Abraham, come and follow me, leave everything and come to a land that I will, future tense, show you. Or Philip in the New Testament, who's overseeing this great revival in Samaria and God says, go out to the wilderness. And when he gets to the wilderness, he sees a chariot and God says, run alongside the chariot. And as he sees the man reading, he finally puts it together, right? God often leads us step by step. And I mean, this is nothing new for Samuel. Samuel knows what this is like. He doesn't have to sit there and go, but what am I going to do when I get there, Lord? He knows that step is coming, but it's a significant application for us, especially on the coattails of what's just happened with Saul. Remember what Saul's great problem was? It was disobedience, okay? Here, Samuel stands in juxtaposition against Saul as obeying without complete information, We saw Saul, he's given the total of his task, and he does not do all of it. But here Samuel doesn't know the whole of it, and yet he steps out in faith. He trusts the one who commands him. In fact, look at verse 4. Samuel did what the Lord commanded and came to Bethlehem. The elders of the city came to meet him trembling and said, Do you come peaceably? Now there's two good reasons why they would come not happy to see Samuel. Uh, One is the last thing that happened when Samuel showed up was an act of judgment, right? This is right behind the judgment of Saul, okay? Not only that, but Samuel kind of has a pattern of this. Remember what happens with Eli, the priest family that Samuel grows up with, right? The great prophecy that God gives them that launches the ministry of Samuel is the destruction of Eli's family, okay? So it's not always good when Samuel shows up unannounced, Uh, But there's a second reason why this might be possible, and that's because it's not just Samuel, it's Samuel plus a cow, okay? Now, we're told back in the book of the law that if there was a, uh, a murder in between towns, right, outside of the city limits, uh, between one town and another, uh, there was a way of determining jurisdiction, and it involves a sacrifice, Okay, and so it may be also that they see Samuel with this cow and toll, and the first thing they think is, somebody's dead, right? Something's happened, okay? Um, but either way, they're not comfortable with his presence. But verse 5, he said, peaceably, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. And he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice, When they came, he looked on Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed is before him. As soon as he sees the oldest son of Jesse, he goes, that's it. That's the one I was expecting. That's the one I've been sent for. But, verse 7, the Lord said to Samuel, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees, but looks on the outward appearance. But the Lord looks on the heart. And so he sees Eliab, and like Saul, he's strong, he's the firstborn, he's good-looking, and Samuel is kind of overcome. He's convinced this is what a king is. Clearly here, clearly here, God's method of veiling who he was to anoint, the reason he doesn't just go, go and anoint David, the son of Jesse. 
He says, go and I'll show you who to anoint. It's because he wants to teach Samuel and Israel collectively a lesson. And the lesson stated here is that God doesn't see things the way we see things. We're often caught up in externals. We notice uh, and rate significant things as being important, as being valuable in someone in uh, political office or in a military appointment or, or just the person for the job. Um, but God looks at something that we don't have access to. In fact, recognize the tension between those things that we know the danger of judging based on externals. We've all met people who are not what they seemed. And yet at the same time, we're so confident in our ability to judge other people. Their goodness and their badness, their strengths and their weaknesses. In fact, why do we talk so much about making a good first impression? Because oftentimes, that's all you get. But God sees what we can't see. He looks at the heart. He sees the inner person, and he likes what he sees in David. And so, verse 8, then Jesse called Abinadab and made him pass before Samuel. And he said, neither is the Lord chosen this one. Then Jesse made uh, Shammah pass by, and he said, neither has the Lord chosen this one. Okay, and so the three oldest sons have now now passed by. It almost feels like a a catwalk, doesn't it? It's like Samuel's just going to stand here. Sons, you just parade before him one after the other. Um, But God's not speaking to Samuel. Now he knows he needs to wait for the voice, but it's not happening. Now, as we'll see, these aren't all of Jesse's sons. Verse 10, Jesse made seven of his sons pass before Samuel. Okay, now seven come by. All seven of his kids pass before Samuel. And that's it. There's no prompting. There's no voice from the Lord. Samuel's in a pickle here. He goes, wait a minute. How can this be? And so he asks. He says, uh, Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord's not chosen these. And then verse 11, Samuel said to Jesse, are all your sons here? And he said, well, there remains the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. Now, just think about this in terms of age for just a second. If, If Jesse here has eight sons, okay, their range in age is at least, at least a dozen years, right? Maybe, maybe many more. It doesn't mention here if he has any daughters or any of that, Um, but this is a large range, and so it's appropriate to believe here that we're talking about uh, David at a relatively young age, probably as an early teenager. In fact, by the time we get to chapter 17, he's still referred to as being under military age, okay? So at that point, he's not yet 20, okay? In other words, the father says, well, there's the boy, but I was sure you couldn't want the boy. In fact, he's relegated to taking care of the sheep. He doesn't serve any sort of significant role in the clan of Jesse. He's just got the chores. Um, And so to the degree that Jesse doesn't even think he's being asked for. Show me your sons. David doesn't even come to mind. And so Samuel said to Jesse, send and get him for we will not sit down till he comes here. Now, we should be seeing some parallels here between the anointing of Saul and the anointing of David. One we've already seen is the hand of Samuel, God's appointed king anointer, 
Okay. On top of that, another thing we see here is that they both revolve around this sacrifice and they're done in the town where the person resides. Okay. And so first it was done, uh, actually I guess it's not done where Saul resides, but in a feast that's happening that Saul just randomly encounters looking for the seer. Uh, and then here it happens in the small town of Bethlehem. There is a later anointing in Saul's life before all of Israel. There will be also in David's life, in fact, two more. One, when he's appointed king over Judah, and then finally, when the rest of Israel gets their act together and recognizes him as king as well. But this is a, a family matter. It's a private affair. Uh, and then the third thing that we should notice here is that both of the stories uh, put the soon-to-be kings in the context of shepherding. Okay. The difference being that Saul is looking for lost donkeys, and Samuel, or excuse me, David here is watching faithfully over the sheep. Now, if you've read the Psalms or the prophets, you know that the image of a shepherd becomes the primary lens for a good king in Israel. Okay. Shepherding is the imagery that's used when the prophets condemn bad leadership, referring to them as false shepherds, as hirelings. Uh, in fact, Jesus picks up on this language himself and identifies himself in John chapter 10 as the good shepherd who lays his life down for the sheep. Even when we get to the New Testament following the life of Jesus and he appoints leaders in the church, one of the primary verbiage, the one that's the most metaphorical, there's elders and overseers, which are known titles in all sorts of community settings in those days, but the one that's uniquely metaphorical is the pastor. Okay, which comes from our English word pasture, right? It has to do with shepherding. And so 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter speaking to pastors says, shepherd the flock of God, okay? As under shepherds of the good shepherd, okay? And so the significance here is that there's something comparative, something valuable God sees uh, in shepherding in its context that he wants to see as well in leadership. Now, oftentimes when we hit shepherding metaphors in the Bible, almost always we talk about what it means to be a sheep. But that's not really ever the emphasis that the Bible makes, okay? And so usually pastors like to joke and talk about how dumb sheep are. That's not what the Bible's talking about. It doesn't want to say, you sheep. It wants to talk about him shepherd. Okay. And as we see, especially in David's ministry, it involves a tremendous amount of provision, taking care of needs. It involves a tremendous amount of care and compassion. Think of the parables that Jesus tells that involve sheep, right? The shepherd who leaves the 99 in safety and goes out looking for the lost. And what does he do? He picks him up and he lays him on his shoulders and he carries him home. To understand the heart of a shepherd, consider the, uh, the parable that Nathan tells David. Remember, he says, hey, David, so there's these two guys. They're neighbors. One of them is tremendously wealthy, has all sorts of flocks and herds. The other one is a poor man who has no family, just one sheep who he's so close to that he sleeps in his house with him. But that wealthy neighbor steals the man's single sheep and kills it to feed its guests. And David can hardly contain his anger. He jumps out of his throne and he says, I tell you, that man will pay fourfold and he will die, right? That's the heart of a shepherd. That's the care that happens when you spend the majority of your time with animals in your, in your care. 
One other place that we see this in the New Testament that just occurred to me is when uh, Jesus refers to himself as a husbandman. Okay, that's King James English, a husbandman. Uh, the idea has to do with a farmer, someone who takes care of specifically vines in that context. Um, but it has to do with soul responsibility and deep care. Okay, and so God comes looking for a shepherd, not one who can't keep track of or find the missing donkeys. Uh, but one who is faithfully caring for the sheep. Now notice when we get to chapter 17 that that's going to be a repeated theme in these opening chapters. So Jesse sends for his son David. So verse 12, they sent and brought him in. Now he was ruddy and had beautiful eyes and was handsome. Uh, ruddy just comes from the word for red. It's the same word that's used of Esau. Remember, who's also known as Edom, which is this word here. It means red. Uh, and so it may be here that he was red-headed, which is relatively rare in Middle Eastern cultures. It may be here that he was ruddy in the sense of spent all of his time outdoors, and so he was kind of permanently sunburned. Um, it also mentions here that he had beautiful eyes, and then it adds that he was handsome. Uh, but also, the Lord said, arise, anoint him, for this is him. This is the one that God has chosen. This is the king that God was raising up. So, verse 13, Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers, I love that phrase, in the midst of his brothers. If there was a story that's comparable to the story of David and his brothers, it would be the story of Joseph and his brothers. We're going to see that same kind of interfamily tension with the young uh, child of the family. Now, probably not Jesse's favorite. He, he wasn't excited about David being a potentially anointed for anything. But right here in the midst, while everyone's watching, all the older brothers have been passed over. Now, remember here... Samuel's been relatively tight-lipped. He doesn't come in and say, hey, Jesse, I've got good news. One of your sons is going to be king. He doesn't say that. He says, show me your sons. He's relatively cryptic. But nonetheless, every one of them knows the significance of Samuel and the significance of being anointed. And now, for some reason, David is the chosen one. Him, right? That's the idea here in the midst of his brothers. But not only that, not only is he anointed with oil, but look at how it finishes verse 13. The spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward, and Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. So he's not just anointed physically with oil, he's spiritually anointed. Now we saw the same thing happen with Saul. Saul, I want you to do this, and you'll hear about the donkeys, and then I want you to go here, and then the Spirit's going to come upon you, and you'll prophesy with the prophets, so you'll know. In fact, the, the text itself says that at that point, he became like a changed man. And so here, that self-same Spirit comes upon David, enabling him and empowering him as God's chosen. Now, I want you to notice the order of that, okay? God chooses David first, and then in the act of anointing him, he empowers him. I think that's significant because oftentimes uh, we have a tendency in almost every other field of life to work the other way around. We focus on the ability first and then the task at hand. In fact, that's generally how we would make kings. We look for evidence of greatness, but Samuel, he has to look for evidence of calling. 
and then the greatness is given. Okay? It's, it's different when we do things for the Lord. My pastor's pastor, Pastor Chuck Smith, kind of the shepherd of Calvary Chapel, he was fond of saying that God doesn't call the trained. He trains the called. And we're going to see that that's the case with David, but we'll add one little caveat. He's already been in training. Now, nobody would recognize it. He didn't go to King's school or anything like that, but God has had a trajectory for David, and the shepherding we're going to see is significantly preparatory for what is to come. But nonetheless, what David needs most to rule well is God's spirit upon him, and here that is given. And so that's it. It's just this overwhelming experience that comes as a surprise, not just to David, but to his whole family. Sacrifice, and then Samuel's gone. Meanwhile, verse 14, now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. So as we move to the throne room of Saul, he's now no longer possessing that self-same enablement, that self-same spiritual anointing of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit has departed from Saul, just like the Spirit had departed from Samson, right? And that's when Samson gets himself in a mess of trouble because he goes out just as he had before, thinking that the Spirit is still with him, uh, but he was not. But it also adds something here that's actually pretty unique in all of the Old Testament. It says that that Spirit was replaced with a harmful spirit. Now, if you're reading an older translation, it probably says an evil spirit. And that is an accurate translation of the, the word there, reah, for evil, but it's a very broad word in Hebrew, okay? And so sometimes it means morally evil. A synonym would be wicked, okay? But oftentimes it means, um, uh, it means havoc, or destruction, okay? And so if God brings evil on a city, it doesn't necessarily mean he does wickedness to them. It means he brings trouble on it, okay? Most likely, that's the best way to understand this. It's not even that God uh, sends a demon, you know, what we would call a morally evil spirit, uh, but a spirit whose job is to trouble Saul, an agitating spirit, if you will. When we look for symptoms of what this looks like, it looks like a couple of things. One, it's tremendously discomforting to the degree that Saul is going to seek out treatment, okay? Two, we're going to be told it in some way causes him to prophesy. That's another thing that's unique about this story is that's the only place outside of the false prophets of later stories, the only place where we encounter prophecy, and it's not really a positive thing. Okay. I was trying to think of a comparative today. The closest I could get was Tourette's. Okay. He's got some sort of physical inability to control his mouth, and it's exhausting, and it's probably discouraging. If we were to encounter Saul, we would say that he has bouts of mental illness. That's what's going on. But I want you to notice here, and here specifically what I'm saying, that this particular, this particular happening has physical manifestations, but it is not merely physical. It's clearly, in this context, spiritual and sent by God. That is not the same thing as saying, one, that the Bible didn't know how to recognize mental illness, so blamed it on the devil. Nor is it the same as saying that if you have mental illness, it's inherently demonic. 
okay? Do you hear how those are out here? What we're talking about is this specific case where we cannot deny the fact that God actively and spiritually impacts the mental health of Saul, okay? We gotta be clear there. Uh, But nonetheless, it's not just a, this is always hard to do because I think in mathematical terms. So hear these words in mathematical terms. We see a negative and a positive here, but they're the opposite of what you'd think, okay? The negative is the subtraction of God's spirit, the enablement to be a good king. The positive is the addition of this troubling spirit. Okay? And so it's not even that he's less than he was or back to where he was. He's worse off. In fact, if we had to look for a comparison just in terms of condition, Jesus' parable about the man who has the demon cast out of him and then he's left open and then seven come and move in and he's worse off than before, that gets closer to what's going on with Saul. But either way, we see here that God is sovereignly doing this not, not really to punish Saul, but to set up Hollywood-worthy circumstances. Because notice what happens. Verse 15, Saul's servant said to him, Behold, now a harmful spirit of God is tormenting you. See, there's that idea of, of evil in the sense of troubling. Verse 16, Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek him out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. And when the harmful spirit of God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. And so this is the counsel he's given by his closest constituents. They say, look, when these bouts, whatever they are, when these episodes come upon you, music will help. Let us find a skilled musician who can soothe you with music when you're having this go on. So, verse 17, Saul said to his servants, provide for me a man who can play well and bring him to me. And one of the young men answered, Behold, I've seen a son of Jesse, the Bethlehemite, who is skillful in playing, a man of valor, a man of war, prudent in speech, a man of good presence, and the Lord is with him. Okay, that's a pretty good resume. Remember here that this is not just, you know, musician wanted. This is, this is for the throne room and sig- for a significant task, not just entertainment, but, but musical therapy. Okay. And so here, this servant speaks up and he says, oh, I know just the guy. Not only is he a great musician, but he's well-respected, uh, he's strong, uh, and the Lord is with him. Therefore, verse 19, Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, send me David, your son, who is with the sheep. And Jesse took a donkey laden with bread and a skin of wine and a young goat and sent them by David, his son, to Saul. Now, that's one of two things. It's either a gift for Saul, just for the recognition, or it's provision for David because he's going to be, you know, in Saul's care and so that he's not a burden. Uh, Either way, all of this is sent along with David, verse 21, and David came to Saul and entered his service and Saul loved him greatly and he became his armor bearer. And so he's just as impressed as anyone else with David and so he becomes... Uh, bodyguards probably not a good modern comparison, uh, but an armor bearer of many, the words in the plural here, one of his armor bearers means that he's significantly and regularly staying close to Saul, okay? Uh, because Saul's condition is, is such that he needs him around. But notice here it says that Saul loves David. Watch how many times we see that phrase tonight, that somebody loves David. It's gonna be repeated over and over and over. But remember here, what we know and Saul doesn't, 
right? Samuel was on tiptoes so that Saul wouldn't find out God had anointed another king, and now Saul has brought him into his presence, into his throne room, and he's kind of fallen for the guy. He's really impressed with him. He loves having him around, okay? This story, this tension between David and Saul has always struck me like the dramatic stories we love to tell, except the ones we love to tell, David would be conniving and sneaky and trying to take the throne, And in actuality, David's going to be tremendously humble and faithful through this, and Saul is constantly going to be the enemy. It's somewhat reversed from the story we usually tell. But notice here in verse 23, whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hands, so Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. And so now kind of the pieces are all in place. Now, once again, we don't know when this story begins. When was David anointed? Sometime as a teenager, maybe, you know, even young, maybe even down to the tweens level. Maybe what we're reading about here, he goes like Samuel did as a young boy to live with Saul. And then maybe eventually he goes home. We're not told. The story picks up again in chapter 17, and there's one of two possibilities. Either a long time has passed, so Saul's familiarity with David has waned, or Saul forgets David's family, Jesse, which is just as possible. But as we'll see, there's something here that, that doesn't, seem, uh, some, doesn't seem momentary, okay? Because eventually... Saul's going to be looking at David as he marches out on the field to fight Goliath, and he's going to go, who is that man's dad? And we're like, well, you know, you just, you just met him. You sent specifically to him. So at the very least, there's a passage of time here, but maybe it's that the David we get into chapter 20 is bearded, slightly older David, forgotten David. It doesn't say. It's just something that's been suggested. Nonetheless, chapter 17, verse 1. Now the Philistines gathered their armies for battle. And remember, this has been an ongoing problem in Israel, one that Saul has been an ongoing solution for. We just read last week about all of the victories over the course of his life against the Philistines and the Ammonites. Um, But here they've gathered and we're told that they gathered at Soko, which belongs to Judah, and encamped between Soko and Azka in Ephes Damim. And Saul and the men of Israel were gathered and encamped in the valley of Elah and drew up in line of battle against the Philistines. Okay, so in this corner, as is always the case, we have the people of Israel and their armies, and in this corner, we have the Philistines. And we're told here they're in a valley, and so you can picture kind of this low land between both of them, and they're both parked in view of one another with this empty no-man's land in between. Okay. And so, verse, uh, verse 3, the Philistines stood on the mountain on the one side, and Israel stood on the mountain on the other side with a valley between them. And there came out from the camp of the Philistines a champion named Goliath of Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Now, this story, David and Goliath, is hands down the most well-known popular culture Bible reference uh, in the Old Testament. Right? In fact, we know the story so well that we often use the comparison of David and Goliath to talk about a surprising victory, right? an underdog victory. Okay? We're familiar with the story, but I want you to notice as we read it that we read it wrong in two ways. One is, why does the underdog win in those stories? Okay? Usually, when you analyze the stories we tell, it's because the older one is confident but slow. Right? 
He's been, you know, the big guy for so long. He's on top of the world. He's IBM in the 90s, and Apple is just a little company, right? Those are the stories we tell. But the, one, the smaller one is always swifter and smarter, uh, and he takes advantage of, you know, the old one not being able to adapt to these things. Even when we tell this story as Christians, I honestly believe we get it wrong. Because how do we tell the story when we recognize, first and foremost, as we'll see, that God is the clear victor in this story, okay? David is not just clever or faster than Goliath, although he might be those things. As David himself recognizes, this is a battle between Goliath and God. David is just the medium for that warfare. He gets it. He understands that. But more importantly than that, how often have we talked about battling our own giants? Okay. When we read the Bible, when we read the Bible, we want to start with the original audience. Okay. In other words, before we can understand what it means for us, we need to ask what it meant to them. Okay. Consistently, the rabbis tell this story not about your average Israelite who, if they just trust God, can overcome insurmountable circumstances. Your average Israelite is in the story, are they not? They're shaking in their boots on the sideline, and they're in need of a deliverer. And that's what God sends, a king. Okay. We're such in our American, modern, democratic, individualistic culture that we're all kings. That's just how we think of things. You know, the, the, the great truth of the American story when it works is the everyman idea, that anyone can be the one, that anyone can make it, that anyone can climb their way to the top. But when we read the story like that, we put ourselves in the wrong shoes. Okay. And so we end up applying this story about David as an example of faith, which he clearly is, when in actuality this is a story about God providing a deliverer like all the stories we read in Judges, uh, like Jesus himself, of whom David is clearly a foreshadowing. And so, here comes Goliath, and get the picture here. So, the valley is quiet, the armies are gathered, and then, you know, the Philistine army kinds of separates, and out comes this man who walks into the middle of the valley. Giant amphitheater style, right? So that just with the sound of his voice, he can speak to the whole army. And we're told that his name is Goliath, we're told that he's from Gath, and then we're told that his height is six cubits and a span, okay? A cubit was the measurement from your elbow to your finger, so think 18 inches average. And a span is the measure from your thumb to your finger, so think nine inches. In other words, he is nine feet and three inches tall. Now, that's, that's tall, okay? That's tall enough that some people stop the story right there and go, this is just mythology, this isn't really accurate or real. But it is worth pointing out um, that we do have continuous records of very large people, not normal, not common. I'm not talking like Amazons. I'm talking about an individual who happens to be very large in culture. So, for example, uh, even in modern times, if you open up the Guinness Book of World Records, you're going to find uh, Robert Wadlow. Okay, Robert Wadlow was measured in the Guinness Book at eight foot 11 inches, okay? And that was, uh, I don't actually, I should have checked the dates, I didn't, but recent enough that we have full photography records of Robert, okay? Not only that, but uh, John Middleton, who's buried in England, we still have his tombstone, and according to his tombstone, he was nine foot three inches tall. 
Now there is a lot of like Robin Hood style legends in the area about him, but the striking piece of history that we all have right in front of him is here lies John Middleton, who was nine foot three inches when he died, okay? It seems, it seems significantly historical. Now, you might be thinking, well, can't we just dig him up? Of course we can't. Of course we can't, okay? We don't do that for trivial matters. And on top of that, um, he lived in the 1600s. And so, you know, the, um, the size, though, nonetheless, um, has lots of reference in history. So on top of that here, we've got, we've got him this large, and that's not all we're told. Nowhere in the rest of the Bible does it spend so much time describing the outerwear of a character, okay? And you have to understand this in the military context. So read verse 5. He had a helmet of bronze on his head, and he was armed with a coat of mail. The weight of the coat was 5,000 shekels of bronze, and he had bronze armor on his legs and a javelin of bronze slung between his shoulders. The shaft of his spear was like a weaver's beam, and his spear's head weighed 600 shekels of iron, and his shield-bearer went before him. Okay, and so he's decked out in a full panoply of armor. He's got a helmet, he's got a breastplate, he's got the greaves, which are like shin guards in soccer, but made of metal. Uh, on top of that, he's, uh, he's got, as we'll see, a sword, and then he's got a bronze spear, and then he's got this weaver's beam throwing javelin, okay? A weaver's beam is a relatively large piece of wood, and it's iron-tipped. Now, why is that significant? First off, start with Israel's army, okay? You may remember that because of the Philistines, until very recently, Israel had no access even to actual swords, Right? And so they went to war with farming implements because all of the blacksmiths were Philistine property. Okay? But on top of that, this is just the beginning of the Iron Age. For anyone to have gathered so much armor, as we'll see, the only ones uh, who had swords in, uh, in the early days of Saul's reign are Saul and Jonathan. That's it. Everybody else is farming implements. We'll see in just a minute that Saul has a bronze helmet and a tunic, okay? Not, not a sheet of, you know, uh, breastplate metal here. Uh, and so he's fully decked out. This is the ancient world equivalent of a panzer, of a tank, okay? He is armored from head to toe. The only place where he is exposed is his face, okay? Everything else, he is indefeatably covered. It's an extensive amount of wealth. In other words, from a strategic standpoint, it's very likely that the Philistines have gone all in on this one warrior, okay? And it's understandable why, right? He's so tall, he's so large, that they just deck him out to the teeth. Now, even, even when we look at this weaver's beam javelin, even a nine-foot-tall man probably can't wield that very effectively. Part of this armor is intimidation, Part of this accoutrement is intimidation, and I'll tell you what, I'm positive it worked, okay? There's nothing like this. They've never seen anything like this, and so this man comes forth, and with his, you know, deep Andre the Giant voice, he begins to speak, verse 8. He stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why have you come out to draw up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he's able to fight with me and kill me, then we will be your servants. 
But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall be our servants and serve us. And so it said earlier that he was a champion, and that's exactly what we'd expect. He basically says, we don't need to fight one another. Just send a representative. And if he faces me and wins, then we'll call this Israel's victory and we'll just surrender. But if I win, then we don't fight anymore and you become our slaves, okay? Now, obviously that's not what happens. Of course, the Philistines run away because they're pretty sure they've got this in the bag, okay? They're not really, uh, you know, offering up an equal fight. There's no uh, referee who's going to call this, right? It, basically, he's just rubbing his strength in Israel's face. In fact, notice what he says next in verse 10. The Philistines said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. Okay, so he boldly says, you're nothing. You're worthless. Send one man, any of your choice. Verse 11, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Okay, so the trick works. They just completely give up hope. In fact, it leads to a 40-day deadlock. And so you can imagine every morning, Goliath comes forward and wakes up the camp of Israel and says, is today the day you're going to send someone out? But they sit there. Now we move scenes back to David, verse 12. Now David was the son of an Epaphrite of Bethlehem in Judah, named Jesse, who had eight sons. All of those details we already know. In the days of Saul, the man was already old and advanced in years. So uh, this is Jesse it's talking about who's already old and advanced in years. In other words, he's no longer of military age. Verse 13, the three oldest sons of Jesse had followed Saul to battle, and the names of his three sons who went to battle were Eliab, the firstborn, next to him Abinadab, and the third Shammah, all who we already met. Verse 14, David was the youngest. The three eldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to feed his father's sheep at Bethlehem. Okay, and so David and Saul already have a relationship according to chapter 17, just like we saw in 16, but unlike his brothers who went to war, he's got dual responsibilities. He's moving back and forth between Saul's palace uh, and, uh, and his sheep in Bethlehem. Verse 16, for 40 days the Philistine came forward and took his stand morning and evening. And Jesse said to David, his son, take for your brothers an ephah of this parched grain and these ten loaves and carry them quickly to the camp of your brothers. Also take these ten cheeses to the commander of their thousand. See if your brothers are well and bring some token from them. Now remember, there's no public newspapers in this day, okay? In fact, we're going to see that Jesse and David have no idea about the standoff between Goliath and the armies of Israel. And so he says, man, I don't know what's happened. I haven't heard anything from the front lines. Take some provision from your brothers and ask how they are, okay? Verse 19, now Saul and they and all the men of Israel were in the valley of Elah fighting with the Philistines and David rose early in the morning and left the sheep with a keeper and took provisions and went as Jesse had commanded him, okay? So notice here, even here, we don't just see David mysteriously leaving the sheep somewhere. Right? And it wouldn't have had to say it. None of us would have gone, hey, wait a, wait a minute, what did he do with the sheep? We would have just assumed that a sibling was watching them. But it takes the time and the care to say that David hands off the sheep to others and then obediently follows the command of his father. And he came to the encampment 
as the host was going out to the battle line, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines drew up for battle, army against army, and David left the things in charge of the keeper of the baggage and ran to the ranks and went and greeted his brother. Even there, we have this uh, encapsulation. So his journey begins with him handing off the sheep appropriately, and now he hands off the food and then runs to the front line. He doesn't abandon what he's supposed to be doing so he can find out what's going on. He finishes his job and then he heads to the front line. Verse uh, 23, he talked with them, the front line. Behold, the champion of the Philistines of Gath, Goliath by name, came out up of the ranks of the Philistines and spoke the same words as before, and David heard him. So while he's getting news, while he's asking about what, what's going on, here comes Goliath giving his spiel again, and David hears it for himself. Verse 24, all the men of Israel, when they saw the man, fled from him and were much afraid. And the men of Israel said, have you seen this man who's come up? Surely he's come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel, tax free. 26, and David said to the men who stood by him, wait, what shall be done for the man who kills the Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? And he says, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Okay, so he's, he hears what's on the table, but what he's really struck by this is, wait a minute, it's just some guy. It's just some uncircumcised Philistine, he says. Um, but he stands against the armies of who? The living God. Now, this is a refrain we find throughout the Bible, this phrase, the living God. Clearly, it's in contrast to the not living gods of all of the nations around Israel, the dead idols of others. And so this title is an emphasis on the fact that our God is God. And that's really all David needs. And so verse 27, the people answered him in the same way, so shall it be done to the man who kills him. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. Notice all of the assumptions that Eliab makes. One, who's caring for the sheep, Daniel? I can't believe you're neglecting the one simple task we gave you, but we know better, don't we? David took care of that. Two, you have come here yourself when actually he was sent by Jesse. And then three, he says, I know your presumption and your evil heart because you've come down to see the battle. You're just excited about swords and blood and fighting. You're just here for a show. Okay. Now, notice specifically, he accuses David of evil of heart. Right? He looks at the exterior through his elder brother completely skewed lens and he goes there's nothing good in David but we know otherwise don't we okay see this is the danger of looking at outward appearances not only do we not see people accept how they present themselves but we never see people accurately because we see them through our own lenses we see them through our own things and so here he's bothered maybe because he's just the runt of the family Maybe he's threatened by his courage because, remember here, Eliab and his brothers have been shaking in their boots for over a month now, and here comes David talking strong, okay? Whatever it is, he's wrong about David. And so verse 13, 
hold on, my page turned. Um, verse 29, and David said, what have I done now? Was it not but a word? He just says, I'm just talking. I haven't done anything wrong. You know, verse 30, he turned away from him toward another and spoke in the same way, and the people answered him again as before. And so he just keeps going on. He's not bothered by the rebuke of his brother. He just turns and he goes, wait, how come you guys aren't going to fight him, right? He's just working his way across the front lines. Verse 31, when the words that David spoke were heard, they repeated them before Saul and he sent for them. Can't you just see the conversations rippling right through the army all the way back to Saul's tent, right? There's a young man here who says he's willing to fight. Right? It's not just that they couldn't find anyone able to stand against Goliath. They couldn't find anyone willing. And here David thinks they're all crazy. He's speaking strongly and he says, I will go, verse 32. David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail because of him. Your servant will go and fight with this Philistine. And Saul said to David, you're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him. For you're but a youth and he's been a man of war from his youth. Okay. Like I said, here it uses the word youth, so he's not of military age yet. He's at best 18 or 19. Okay. On top of that, he says, and let's be honest, have you seen that guy? He was an adult fighting when he was 12, you know, because he was six and a half feet high. Okay. That's the premise here is he has been fighting longer than you've been alive. His childhood was not very long, right, is the idea here. But 34, David said to Saul, your servant used to keep sheep for his father. And when there came a lion or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. Now this is the contrast that Jesus makes between a good shepherd and a hireling, okay? Is that when evil comes, when a wolf comes, for example, that's the animal that Jesus uses, the shepherd runs away and saves his own skin. Here, a lion and a bear come, they steal a sheep and David goes after them to save the sheep and to kill the lion or the bear. Verse 35, I went after him and struck him and delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard or his mane, we would say, and struck him and killed him. Your servant struck down both lions and bears and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them for he's defied the armies of the living God. Now notice there he says two things. He says, first, I do know how to handle myself. I've single-handedly dealt with lions and bears. But second, he says it will be no different with this Philistine because he stood against God. Okay. And so, verse 37, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. He doesn't merely say, I'm strong enough for a lion or a bear, ergo I can take on Goliath, he says, God was with me when it was a lion and a bear, and now this is just an uncircumcised Philistine. It's no different, okay? Let me go. And so Saul gives him permission. Verse 38, Saul clothed David with his armor. He put a helmet of bronze on his head and clothed him with a coat of mail. And David strapped a sword over his armor, and he tried in vain to go, for he'd not tested them. In other words, he'd never fought in armor before. Um, I'm watching... Uh, I'm watching Mythbusters with my kids right now, and there's an episode where they test out this thing that happens in first-person shooters, video games, where as you run through the level, you pick up and you hold multiple weapons and a couple of boxes of medicine and a bunch of ammo boxes. 
And they, the question is just, wouldn't that weigh you down? Wouldn't that make it impossible to fight? And so uh, Adam and Jamie test it, and their times double trying to haul 80 pounds worth of gear. But then they bring in a UFC fighter. And he runs it. He runs it four minutes, which is better than their best time. Uh, and then he runs it four minutes and three seconds carrying the extra 80 pounds, right? Because he's used to the load. He's worked with the weight, okay? David here, he's never put on armor before. He's not tested it. He's not used to it. But how is Saul seeing this? If I'm going to send you out there, I want to give you as much protection as possible, okay? But David's never worn armor before. It's not helpful. So David put them off. Then he picks his own weapons. He doesn't even take Saul's sword. Instead, he takes his staff in his hand, and he chose five smooth stones from the brook and put them in his shepherd's pouch, okay? In other words, he takes his usual shepherd stuff, okay? You remember what it says in Psalm 23? Your rod and your staff, they comfort me, okay? One of those is for leading the sheep. The other is for beating wolves, okay? He's got that. It's just a stick. And then it says he wears his shepherd pouch. You know, basically it's a fanny pack. And he fills it with five smooth stones from the brook, and then he takes his sling. Now, if you're not familiar with a sling, don't think uh, wrist rocket. Don't think slingshot, okay? What this is is a pocket of leather and then two about three-foot strings uh, attached, one to each side. Uh, and on top of that, and this is something new I didn't realize, when we see visualizations of sling stones... Uh, we don't have any in existence. They're not as easy to spot as arrowheads because they're just rocks. But when we see them visualized, don't think a skipping stone, okay? Think a baseball-sized rock. They're relatively large, okay? Um, but nonetheless, that's all he takes is just, just a pocket full of rocks, his staff and his sling, and he goes out to face the giant, verse 44, 41. And the Philistine moved forward and came near David with his shield-bearer in front of him. And when the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. Now, I can't really read that sentence without reading Paul's exhortation to Timothy. When he says, don't let anyone despise your youth, but be an example to all of faith and purity, of love, of good contact and sound mind. Uh, but that's exactly how the Philistine here, once again, he looks at appearances. He says, this guy? You sent out just a child to fight me? And then notice how he responds in verse 43. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. And the Philistine said to David, come to me, and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. Okay, now, so notice there, he does, he does three things. He mocks him, he curses him with his own gods, okay? He sees this as of religious significance. And then last, he promises to desecrate his body so that he doesn't get a proper burial, okay? It's not really that far from the, um, from the talk of, like, rated R movies right before there's a big fight. It's really that type of thing. It's, it's crude, it's intentionally derogatory, uh, and then David speaks as well, okay? So verse 45, David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Okay. Remember that phrase there for the Lord of hosts is a military phrase. It's the Lord of armies. Okay. He says, you've come at me with the weapons of men, but I come with the living God. 
Okay. Verse 46, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. So he escalates the language here. He says, you've threatened to leave my carcass in the sand. God is going to leave your army's carcassi, plural, in the sand, right? Uh, and then he says very clearly here, God is going to do this and he's going to do it so that you know he is God. Now, what does that imply about David's ability here? It's supposed to be striking that even a shepherd like David can take this guy down. That's the intention of what's going into this. He wants it to be clear who the true victor is here. In fact, notice how he finishes this. He says in verse 47, that you know that there's a God in Israel and that this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with the sword and the spear, for the battle is of the Lord's and he will give you into our hands. The assembly there is the people of Israel. He says, I'm doing this so Israel remember that God is all they need. Right? I'm doing this so that they will see that God is all they need for the battle belongs to the Lord. Now, this is very similar to the words of Jonathan the last time there was a battle with the Philistines, right? Jonathan takes his armor bearer and he says, the two of us are enough with the Lord because God can save by the many or the few, okay? David and Jonathan are cut from the same cloth. They're, they're perfectly built to be brothers, as we'll see, that's exactly what happens. Now, verse 48 when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet the Philistine. And David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on his forehead. Now this doesn't stand out as well as in the English, but you can see it a little bit. Do you notice how slow and um, difficult, not difficult, what's the word I want? Um, listen to the cadence of the description of Goliath's actions and in the cadence of David's. It says here, when the Philistine arose and came and drew near to meet David, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet the Philistines. David put his hand in his bag and took out a stone and slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehand. All the Philistine accomplishes in these steps is just slowly moving towards David. David goes through this whole action, and before the Philistine even gets close, this stone is flying through the air, and it hits him right in the forehead. Verse 49 finishes, the stone sank into his forehead, and he fell on his face to the ground. Okay, and so it's just over, just like that. So David prevailed over the Philistine with a sling and with a stone, and struck the Philistine and killed him. There was no sword in the hand of David. Then David ran and stood over the Philistine and took his sword and drew it out of his sheath and killed him and cut off his head with it. And when the Philistines saw that their champion was dead, they fled. And the men of Israel and Judah rose with a shout and pursued the Philistines as far as Gath and the gates of Ekron so that the wounded Philistines fell on the way from Shirim as far as Gath and Ekron. Okay, so two things happen here simultaneously. The Philistines lose the will to fight and turn tail. The Israelites realize that God has given them the victory and pursue them and chase them all the way back to Ekron, which is one of the big Philistine cities. Verse 54, and David took the head of the Philistine and brought it to Jerusalem, but he put his armor in his tent. Now, 
That's interesting because Jerusalem doesn't become Jerusalem proper until David is reigning and ruling and kicks out the Jebusites. Okay? And so one suggestion is that the way we read this is that he keeps it into his possession and then puts it on display in Jerusalem, this skull of this nine-foot-high man you know, that David was a victor, a constant reminder of God's deliverance. That's possible. There are others who argue that it's weird to put it that way and then say, but he put his armor in his tent because that's not going to stay in his tent. Clearly, that's what he does right now. He takes it to his little shepherd tent because it's, you know, he came overnight to the, to the front lines. Uh, it, it's hard to tell what's going on here. I would suggest the most likely way to read it is that he eventually puts this on display in Jerusalem. Okay. Um, uh, and then notice he takes Goliath's armor as well. That will actually make it back into the story later. Okay, verse 55, as soon as Saul saw David go out against the Philistine, he said to Abner, the commander of his armor, army, remember his uncle, Abner, whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I do not know. And the king said, inquire whose son the boy is. And as soon as David returned from striking down of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? And David answered, I am the son of your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Okay. Now, like we saw, he's already familiar with David. And here he doesn't ask who David is, but he is really suddenly very interested in who's your father. Okay. And there's two reasons here. One, because as we've already seen, Israel makes a significant emphasis of descendancy a significant emphasis on ancestry. In fact, that was one of the high notes of Saul, that he came from one of the families of the mighty, okay? The noblemen, the fighters, the warriors, okay? So there's that sense, but also remember the promise that Saul had apparently made to the armies? Your family's gonna go tax-free. And so he's also inquiring here in, in the sense of reward, okay? Um, let's do one more chapter tonight, chapter 18. As soon as he'd finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. Okay, so earlier we saw that Saul loved David. Now we see that Jonathan loves David, and like I said, it's not hard to see why. Because Jonathan and David are cut from the same cloth. They d both have an intimate relationship with God and know that he's all Israel needs to fight the battles. And so basically, Jonathan looks and he goes, that's a man after my own heart. That's, that's somebody I resonate with. And so he loved him as his own soul. Uh, verse 2, Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. What did we learn halfway through chapter 17? He'd been coming and going when Saul needed him. Now he becomes a permanent resident at Saul's palace. Okay. Verse 3, then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. Okay. In other words, he makes a commitment to David. That's what a covenant is. But unlike a contract where it's an agreement for the exchange of goods or services, a covenant is a commitment of loyalty. Okay. It says, I'm committed to you personally. And we can assume here that it's a a two-way covenant. They're committed to one another. Now, David and Jonathan are one of the best examples um, of same-sex love in the Bible, and I know what I just said, but here's the thing, okay? We, as a culture, have neglected friendship, and so when we hear same-sex love, we think of same-sex sexual love, 
but actually there's quite a few definitive stories in the Bible that uphold a beautiful relationship between two men or two women. Another example would be Ruth's commitment to her mother-in-law, okay? And what does she say to her? She says, I'm making a covenant. I'm making a commitment. Where you go, I will go. Your people will be my people, and I will live with you until you die. Okay? Here we see the same thing with David and Jonathan. They make a commitment to one another. It's a commitment of friendship, of loyalty. Okay? Um, it's going to get to the point that when Jonathan finally dies at Saul's side, uh, in the army where Saul, or in the battle where Saul dies as well, David will weep over him and he will say, his love was more valuable to me than the love of women. That's how intimate their relationship was. That's how close it was that he valued it higher than his relationship with his wife. Um, I, think, I think this type of relationship we are in dire need to recover. The danger we've got ourselves in is that we have assumed um, that all relationships that are non-familial fit on a spectrum moving towards intimacy, okay? And so we have good friends and we have best friends and then we have spouses. That's why so much of our culture puts such a heavy significance on getting married that if you don't get married, you're missing your completion, right, Jerry Maguire? You're missing, you know, the, the part of you. You have to have this to be fulfilled and to be complete. In fact, there's even this idea that somehow when you get married, all other friendships pale away. But that's not what happens in David's life. It's not merely that marriage is an intimate relationship. It's uniquely intimate, not extremely intimate, not more intimate, but intimate in a different way. What they have here in this committed friendship is not a one flesh union, as the Bible describes it in Genesis. It is intimate in a different way because it is, it is a same-sex relationship of deep friendship and understanding. Right? Part of what makes marriage marriage, according, according to the Bible, is the difference of man and woman. Not just anatomically, okay? But in the broad sense of male and female, he created them in the image of God, okay? There's a significance, a complementarity in marriage. But in friendship, in deep same-sex friendship, it's the similarity, it's the being understood, it's the compatibility and the comparison that makes it. And I say again, this is something that our culture is struggling with, it's the reason why our marriages are so volatile, because not only do we put all the weight of existence on them, but we also isolate them from all other relationships and say, this is the one person who must fulfill my every relational need. That's new in human history. That's not a normally significant way of understanding the web of community that history and as the Bible portrays it, we need. Um, I'm getting off track, but one more thing. Just keep in mind that the sexual union between a man and a woman is geared towards procreation, meaning even that relation itself points beyond that relationship, doesn't it? Okay. When it says in Genesis, it's not good that man should be alone, it doesn't just mean it's not good that Adam should be a bachelor. He doesn't just need a wife. He needs community. And so be fruitful and multiply is how Adam moves towards community. And he's given a helper to help him accomplish that goal to move towards, not just, the story doesn't end, I have a wife, that's everything I need. No, 
right? He needs other men in his life. He needs sons. He needs friends. He needs community. And so David and Jonathan find this special loving friendship of commitment. And then notice verse 4, Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David, his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And that's probably a significant sacrifice. He takes his royal armament and he gives it to David. It's probably a recognition that you are God's man. Some even suggest here that what he's doing is surrendering his own desires to ever be the king of Israel, right? Because he would have been the next in line for the throne, recognizing, but more likely it's just suggesting here that he recognizes David's military superiority and effectively says, you're going to need this more than me. Either way, it's a, it's a beautiful expression from the wealthiest kid in Israel to the shepherd boy David, right? Verse 5, and David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul sent him out over his man of war. What is that? That's promotion, right? He does well in battle, and so now he becomes one of the commanding generals, and now he's not going with Saul as an armor bearer. He's going for Saul as the leader of Saul's armies. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Everybody sees David for what he is, and they love him for it. Verse 6, as they were coming home when David returned from the striking down of the Philistine. Okay, so notice here we're telling two parallel stories. It moves way forward, and there's promotion, and there's recognition, but there's also something brewing behind the scenes in Saul's heart, and it begins on day one. As they're walking back from this great victory over the Philistines, notice what it says here. The women came, came out of the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. Saul has done amazing victories for Israel, and here comes David, and we expect even more from him. And Saul, verse 8, was very angry, and this saying displeased him. And he said, they've described to David ten thousands, and to me they've only ascribed thousands, and what more can he have but the kingdom? Now, this jealousy does not stem from Samuel's prophecy that he would lose the kingdom. It stems from the insecurity we've seen in Saul the whole time. He cares what people think of him. And the problem is, if you build your life on your reputation and your popularity, when it goes, so goes you. He has made himself reliant on the praises of other men, and now that he's not in the spotlight, it starts to eat him alive. And so it says in verse 9, Saul eyed David from that day on. Could there be a better description? That's perfect. Saul eyed David. Just constantly, you know, through through just slits of anger and jealousy, just stare at him the whole time. But there's this other Saul, the Saul who sees David for what he is, recognizes the convenience of having a great warrior, and keeps moving him up the food chain. That tension, that war is going to rage in Saul. So verse 10, The next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. Uh, the word there for raved is the word prophesied. Right? It's just used in this clearly out-of-control uh, habit. And so it gets really bad the next day. Okay? Uh, and so while David was paying, playing the lyre, as he always did for Saul, Saul had his spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I'll pin David to the wall. 
but David evaded him twice. Now, notice two things there, okay? First, notice what's going on with Saul. This is two days after David's great victory, and he's already trying to kill him. This is not something that comes with time. It's already there. Second, David comes back enough to actually get thrown at a second time. Okay? This is another thing that we'll see throughout the story is that David is unbelievably committed to Saul. Um, so, verse 12, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but he had departed from Saul. In other words, he looks at the clear circumstances of this and he goes, how did that kid evade death 10 feet from my face twice? And he knows what it means. He goes, God is with him. God is no longer with me. So Saul removed him from his presence and made him a commander of the thousand. And he went out and came in before his people. And David had success in all his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful awe of him. Do you see how his emotions are all over the map? He's angry. He's jealous. He's afraid. He's in awe. He's totally captivated with David. It becomes all he thinks about, all he worries about. All of his nightmares revolve around David. Verse 16, but all Israel and Judah love David, for he went out and came in before them. Saul loved David, at least he used to. Jonathan loves David. All of Israel loves David. Then Saul said to David, here is my elder daughter Mirab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. Remember, that was the other promise that was made. Whoever takes out Goliath, he will have one of my daughters. And so now she's effectively engaged by word to David. But uh, for Saul thought, let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. But he modifies the deal. He goes, come and fight for me, and I'll give you my, wife, or give you my daughter as a wife. And he goes, it's only a matter of time until he gets taken out on the battle line. Verse 18, David said to Saul, Who am I? And who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel, that I should be son-in-law to the king? The humility there. Not only is it just a great character trait of David that will continue, uh, but in contrast here, Saul is manipulative and he's trying to take advantage of his vanity and go, if you want a straight shot to the throne, buddy, just get out on the front lines. And David's like, I'm not deserving to be your son-in-law. I don't have any piece of that. Verse 19, but at, this, at the time when Mirab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Mehethalite, for a wife. Okay. In other words, he doesn't keep his promise. If we had to think of somebody in the Bible, this reminds of us, who would it be? Laban, right? I'll give you, I'll give you my daughter, Rachel, sure. I'll, actually, Leah will have to do for now, right? Verse 20, now Saul's daughter Michal loved David, another one, another David lover, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. Really? Is that what you were expecting? No. No, I'm sorry, you can't marry him. Do you know what he is to me? But he hears this and he goes, oh, this is good. And then we find out why. Verse 21, Saul thought, let me give him to her that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Okay, He's got two ideas in here. One, as we'll see, is he's going to run him out into battle again. It's another chance to push him out into danger. But the second thing is, he says that Mikael will be a snare to him. In other words, he goes, I know who she really is, and that would be great. That would be great to tie David to her. 
it's not only is it an awful way to think about a daughter, not only is it manipulative and he's using his daughter for, for you know, intrigue, but on top of that, uh, his assessment of his daughter is just, it's accepting, but he calls her a snare, and as we'll see, she might deserve the title. And so he comes up with a second plan, and so uh, he said to her a second time, You shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, Speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. He knows he's got reasons, trust reasons with David, right? The guy who threw the spear at him twice. And so he he privately sends a little bit of gossip. Hey, I just want you to tell him quietly that I just love him. Tell him quietly that everybody knows that me and everybody's committed to him. Okay, he's buttering him up. He's preparing him. And so, verse 23, Saul's servant spoke those words in the ears of David, and David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I'm a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, Thus and so did David speak. In other words, he goes, Even if that was the case, why would he take me as his daughter's husband? Remember, in this day and age, usually there was some sort of a dowry involved. Okay. Now, we might frown on that because we think of it as being, uh, you know, about treating women as, as property. I don't think that's the best way to think about it. Any father of a daughter knows what he wants out of a son is somebody who's going to provide. Okay. A dowry says very specifically, I can take care of your daughter. Okay. In fact, the modified version of the dowry that we find in most of Israel's history is actually set aside by the father just in case something goes wrong in the marriage so that she'll be provided for. In other words, it's provision whether she becomes a widow or a divorcee paid up front. Okay. But nonetheless, David looks and he goes, I don't have anything to offer. You know, I'm an employee of the king. He feeds me at the table. That's my entire salary. I'm from a poor family. And so this gets back to Saul. Verse 25, thus Saul said... Uh, uh, then Saul said, Thus you shall say to David, The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now, that's a gruesome dowry. Of course it is. But also recognize that it is effectively a receipt. Okay? It is a gruesome one. Um, but it's not incomparable to other points in histories where you had to bring evidence of those you struck down. It just happens here to be foreskins. But a hundred of them is a hundred men that David has to kill personally for the king. Uh, now Saul thought to make David fall by the hands of the Philistine. He's just hoping to overload him here, right? I'm just, I'm just going to make his ambition too much so he'll get too risky, okay? Uh, so what happens? Verse 26, when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter, Michal, for a wife. But when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continuously. I want you to notice here where all the enmity is coming from. Okay? Why is David Saul's enemy? Because Saul keeps trying to kill David, to manipulate David. And here he's, he moves his daughter into his life to kind of as a last straw. And then he looks at it and he goes, oh, I'm not sure this is going to work. This could have been a bad move. So he hates David even more. 
When we are truly consumed by hatred, it is always this way. I remember an occasion when I was in high school and a guy who I just assumed was my friend because we'd spent a good deal of time together convinced me to ask out this girl. She was an upperclassman. Uh, we, we both knew her mutually and he, he spoke very positively and it's like, oh, I know she'll go for it and the whole thing. Uh, and so I asked her out and she said yes and my friend was irate. Like sitting on the bus behind me, punching the wall because he was so angry. And I realized, oh my gosh, I was just the fall guy. The whole idea was I come in and get shot down and then he, I, I don't know how this works, it never made any sense to me, but that was clearly the plan. But he had to live with that hatred that he had created. It wasn't a game to me, it wasn't a fight. In fact, the first thing I did was break it off with her because I wasn't really interested in that. He was more important to me. But all of that hatred, I was now the enemy who had ruined his life, he had ruined his life and that is gonna be the case with Saul. This will be all-consuming. Let's finish in verse 30. The princes of the Philistines came out to battle. As often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. Okay, so now all the pieces are in place for what's going to play out for the rest of Saul and David's relationship. The tension and the hatred and the jealousy and these types of things. But what do we see from the God side? We see what was repeated over and over again, that the hand of the Lord is with David. And that doesn't matter if he's fighting the Philistines or avoiding the destruction of Saul, who's supposed to be his employer. Okay. God is gracious and good, um, and there's nothing Saul can do about it. Let's pray. Father, I want to go back to the story of David and Goliath and put ourselves rightly in the scene, Lord, that we are the ones who stand before hell and sin and death and the enmity we have uh, and we shake in our boots. There's nothing we can do and yet you have raised up a king who fights for us, who slays our giants, who gives us the victory. And I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't forget like Saul did, like Israel did, that we have to fight our own battles, that we wouldn't be afraid of the things that are before us, that we would um, call out for you to deliver us afresh and to be our victor. And I know, Lord, that on top of that, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against powers and principalities and spiritual forces of darkness, Lord. Um, but you have given us uh, the weapons of that, and those weapons are the salvation of Jesus Christ. It's the breastplate of righteousness, not our righteousness, but his imputed to us. It's the helmet of salvation because we know that we are saved. Lord, it's all of the pieces uh, that you have made a way for us, that you have armed us in your very own armor. Uh, and unlike, unlike David with Saul, it fits us because it's custom fit because it's everything we need for life and godliness. So I pray that we would employ it to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Have a good night.